Hello, how you doing? My name is Matt Barr and you're listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. And yes, I do have a cold or the man flu or whatever you want to call it. Summer cold, that's what I'm calling it. And uh, But the show must go on. So here I am and I hope it doesn't uh, put you off too much. So if you're a regular listener, you'll know this is my podcast where I try and uncover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. And we're on episode 13, which I'm really pleased about. Uh, because it's uh, shooting by all these episodes and I'm still really enjoying it. And apparently you lot are too, because I'm getting more and more feedback every week. I'm not going to say any more than that because I think it gets really dull when everybody harps on about that every week. Suffice to say thank you and uh, keep listening. This week's episode, so we've got a change of direction this week and I think all the better for it really. Uh, my guest today is the great Kami Zerum, skier, climber, outdoorsman, head judge of the Kendall Mountain Film Festival and a news journalist for Channel 4 News here in the UK. So for my international listeners, and there are a few of you out there these days, Channel 4 is one of the big networks here in the UK where Kami's held various roles. He's been head of the Washington Bureau as a presenter and producer. He's been a sports correspondent covering the Olympics, Paralympics and World Cups. And he's currently a news journalist working across some of the biggest stories in Europe every day. So I actually met Kami about five years ago on Twitter in uh, quite the modern fashion. In what I think was the only time I've actually managed to translate a virtual friendship on that platform into an actual real life one. Uh, My interest was initially piqued when I saw a report he'd filed on the deaths of J.P. O'Claire and Andreas Franson back in 2014. It was was a a piece to camera um, and uh, it was unusually sensitive and nuanced for a mainstream report on action sports and it was obviously rendered by somebody who had a deep passion for what he was talking about which I think in the mainstream world we can all agree people who know the sports is is really unusual so I contacted him on Twitter which I was fairly active on at the time although I've not really used it for about six months now to big him up and uh, and yeah we stayed in touch and over the last few years have become friends I would say who catch up to chat about action sports and life over a beer whenever we can. So for me, Kami was always a shoo-in for the podcast really. Sure he's not as well known in the wider action sports industry as some of, as some of my uh, past and future guests but he's been passionate and involved in the in- industry for over 20 years and ultimately his day job which is really what we spend most of the time talking about gives him a unique perspective and also means he's got stories that I knew would make him perfect for the podcast. And as you'll hear, I was right. As you might expect from a professional broadcaster, Kami's a hugely articulate presence with plenty of interesting things to say about action sports and much, much more. So I spoke to Kami about three weeks after the Grenfell Tower disaster here in the UK. I'm just going to put this into context for, uh, again, for international listeners or people who may not have followed this story that closely. That has easily been the biggest story of the summer in the United Kingdom. And it looks likely to be the biggest story in the UK for the foreseeable future, really. And Kami'd spent every day for three weeks working across it and interacting with people affected by the fire. So for the first 20 minutes of our conversation, we did focus very heavily on what is essentially a topical news story because it had obviously personally affected Kami very deeply. And he explains the significance of this story much more articulately than I'll be able to. But Grenfell does appear to be one of those once-in-a-generation events in in this country, like Hillsborough um, in 1989, that reveals many of the deep and underlying fault lines at play in UK society. I mean, they cover class, economy, 
um, trust, justice. There's 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 more. There's a lot more, and it's going to be uh, going on for for a long time. I think this, and it was fascinating to hear his insights. Really, as somebody who's been on the ground investigating some of these issues, so uh, yeah, I hope you get as much out of that as I did because I felt really privileged to to hear him talk about that. Elsewhere, we covered his career in TV, news, and sport. And there's some great detail on how the news industry works, how Kami got his break, and how people who want to get into the industry today can can make themselves stand out. We also covered Kami's passion for action sports, and the films which he's passionate about, and the work he's been doing as the head judge of the Kendall Mountain Film Festival over the last few years, which is a great event, and I'm going to put a few links up for that so people can find out more about that. So all in all, there's plenty to get your teeth into here, and uh, we had a great time chatting over a couple of beers on a very sunny evening in Soho in July 2017. As you're going to hear, Kami's got a big heart and a brain brimming with ideas and empathy. And I really enjoyed our chat. And I hope you lot do too. So here it is, Kami and Zerum on the importance of finding the story. Enjoy. So, Kami, good Matt, to see you. It's a pleasure. It genuinely is. Thank you for uh, for joining me. And here we are in the uh, middle of Soho. It, 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 Summery Soho. Lo- looking out over that um, sunset, it's about as close as you can get to a kind of mountain top peak lit with crimson kind of you know, shafts of sunlight. This is as good as Soho gets. <laughs> this is as good as it's going to look, I reckon. Yeah. So how's your day been? You've been working. What have you been up to? I have been working. I've had a, I've had a complicated day, um, actually. Uh, I have been at work. We're juggling a lot of big stories um, that are difficult and important. Um, I started the morning dealing with some Grenfell uh, phone calls. It's a Grenfell Tower, obviously the biggest news story in the UK right now. Yeah, and you've been on this story since the start, right? Yeah, so this this is um, a high-rise uh, social housing block that burned down, um, and it is very clear that that was a result of um, poor refurbishments, warnings that were went unheeded, warnings from residents and um, politicians who could have made sure the build was up to scratch and uh, a lot of confusion around the the nature of the the materials that were used and the role of the contractors in, in, in all of that uh, and potentially potentially over 100 people dead so we're talking it's two just over two weeks isn't it since this happened I think yeah I think it's I think it's 3 weeks now. 3 weeks. Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah. And what what have you been uh, working on in that time? What stories have you been involved in? So uh the re- one of the reasons that it it's been busy is it hasn't just been Grenfell. I also got involved in the Finsbury Park terrorist attack where a man died um and a number of other worshippers were were very seriously hurt. Uh, and obviously this kind of comes on the back of an unexpected election result and three other terrorist attacks and Brexit. So in the world of news, things have never really been busier. 
and arguably never been more important. And this is in the kind of context of fake news and people not trusting the media and the rest of it. But back to your original question about Grenfell, um, the day that the fire happened, I was down there on the ground um, talking to survivors and, and, and residents and volunteers and every day has been different and every day has been terrible and every day has been very, very sad. Uh, and we are trying to find a way to get to the bottom of why this happened. So as a journalist, this must be the kind of story where it feels important that you actually uncover the truth. These are the kind of stories that I wanted to be, that made me want to be a journalist. Um, because there are genuine victims and it speaks to uh, much, much wider truths and questions about how we organize society and community and justice, access to justice, power, inequality and, and politics. And Grenfell really is kind of the UK's Hurricane Katrina. Um, and Well, I was going to say, it's, 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 there's so many layers to it. I mean, we were talking before we started recording and it's endless for UK society, this story, isn't it? It goes to, it speaks to so many different issues, so many different threads, um, whether it's like you say, the, the localised neglect that led to it, mm. whether it's about the inequality in UK society, mm. then you've got the coincidence of the, the inquest being announced in the same week as Hillsborough and what that says about institutionalised yeah. Yeah. Uh, corruption. Um, so how do you even begin to to start making sense of something like this when you when you're approaching it from a work point of view that's a really good question actually there are there are kind of big questions about what we focus on and how we can make a difference in terms of justice and there are smaller questions around how do we represent people's stories and to take the first question um it's well documented that residents were complaining to their elected representatives, the people that work for them about the nature of their housing and alleged bullying on behalf of contractors and the tenant management organization. Uh, a lot of this will ultimately, one assumes, be dealt with in the inquiry, but uh, one, one can't assume that that's the case. So one of the jobs that we have to do is to make sure that all of those claims are uh, if if we if they if they're solid, are in the public domain so that nobody can hide and anybody that has questions to answer is is made to answer them and whether that is in a public forum or in the form of an inquiry, it happens. Um, but but it is hard to do that because people are scared and people are confused and they don't necessarily um, they don't necessarily we've seen they don't necessarily trust the media to tell their stories properly so that leads us on to the other thing which is how do you tell individual stories and for example i spent most of yesterday in one of the hotels where evacuees and survivors have been put and luckily um i i wasn't um uh, essentially it was a scheduling issue i wasn't scheduled to be on air that day so i just had the time to sit there and let people talk to me without that you've been a journalist without that really awkward time pressure of that's great 
can you say it on camera and yeah. can you say it tonight? We've got a deadline, I need a story. Yeah, and, and that, can, that really can undermine that process of um, trust creation that when somebody, when somebody has suffered an, an unbelievably grim trauma, they have to want to tell their story. Well, this whole thing is about trust, isn't it? Trust in institutions and how it doesn't exist, really, in, uh, on a lot of levels. What, are, what, are you, what reactions are you, are you finding from, from the authorities then in, in, in the face of these challenges that they're now having to deal with? I'll tell you a story. On um, Saturday, the, news, the Grenfell news story of the day was that evacuees and survivors were, it was said, still being charged rent. Uh, and there was a, a, a very um, infamous now interview that was conducted by one of the councillors, Kensington councillors. And uh, she, in, re in responding to this news, she began to say, oh, it's a, it's a tiny thing. And then she corrected herself and uh, went on to say, actually, it's not a tiny thing. It's a really important thing. But you must remember that we as the council are in the process of trying to have rehouse 400 people, etc. Um, and her response was in many ways, so residents tell me, instructive of how they f no longer trust government. Because instead of the reaction that they wanted to hear, which was, I can't believe how insulting and awful this must be for anyone that's caught up in this, we'll immediately get to the bottom of it. Don't worry, anyone who's been charged rent will make sure they're not. The residents say, actually, this revealed the truth of where a lot of people that are in power are coming from, which is actually, if you're well off, then rent isn't a thing. It's a tiny thing. So I think you have to, you have to kind of look to what government what people in power have said how they've responded to things to begin to understand why lots of the public are so disappointed and angry and do you put it down to uh ignorance or contempt is it is it literally just because they don't understand the situation or they don't care about it kensington and chelsea council represent the wealthiest borough in the country i mean that's another reason this is such a resonant story isn't it i mean it, it could it's have a, happened it, in a more exclusive postcode could it indeed um and um i mean you know what one one, <laughs> one thing that is we talk about poverty and inequality and actually uh lots of the people that lived in grenfell tower uh when we when we say somebody is poor, it evokes images of you know welfare scroungers and this and the other. But actually, uh, that in itself is a very loaded suggestion. But many of the people that were living in Grenfell were ordinary folk, working, paying tax, kids at school, part of their community, community workers, councillors, uh, drivers, patron decorators teachers nurses um and so it's it's <laughs> it's been really really upsetting 
getting to the bottom of a lot of this and understanding or trying to understand quite how divided and and um, unknowing a lot of the people in power in in central government and the local government were and arguably still are unknowing as uh, in they just literally have about what what it what's what the so rea- the reality of, of of how people are living in in the capital city yeah so i i spent an hour yesterday uh, i bumped into a woman that i'd met the day that jeremy corbyn went to st clement's church which is one of the was one of the donation centers right next to grenfell tower uh there was uh, I, I met a woman a local woman there who was campaigning uh trying to find um missing friends and relatives and we got to talking about the whole rent thing and she this is a very a wonderfully bright engaging vivacious woman uh who um works as an administrator and she explained to me the importance of how much rent costs and she told me that when the minimum wage was increased the council immediately increased her rent so she saw no net benefit she makes nothing at the end of the month she is somebody who would be better off on welfare but she does not want she wants to work why why, why you know she's an like intelligent most, person. like most people do yeah she wants to have uh, an identity and 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 have intelligent discussions with people and go to work and come back like the rest of us do the impact of not having to and, and she's in one of the blocks that's been evacuated she went she came back there's no hot water right. she looks out of her window and grenfell towers there it's horrible man yeah it is absolutely horrible the the impact of not having to pay rent for her for the next few months will be massive because that's money that can then be a little nest egg and the trauma that she's experienced i personally think that's the least that should be done for people that have been caught up caught up in this so how about uh personally how do you obviously this is one story and i'm sure we'll cover some of the other incredible incredibly significant stories that you've covered in your career you've mentioned Katrina mm. that you covered mm. you've mentioned the stories you've been working on the last six weeks I mean mm. you did London Bridge as well right yeah how do you personally cope with that yeah you know it's it's hard actually and and it's hard the hardest thing it's hard in two ways I find it just hits me in two ways um, you know I'm a dad I've got two kids I find dealing with anything around young people being hurt really difficult stuff i just can't watch that i would have done before um i find you know the 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 beauty if such a word is appropriate in this circumstance and perhaps it is not the beauty of being able to spend hours literally hours yesterday just talking to evacuees and residents in the hotel was that they could just tell their stories and clearly i wanted something out of that because i want to then be able to go and tell their stories okay so Am I being in some way a fraud? I don't know. If I if I put them through this, and actually there was a, there was actually a bit of a catharsis. They, they they were very thankful that I was just sitting there talking to them. There was a, so there was this cathartic element for for a lot of the people, I think. But if I put them through this and then don't do a story because for whatever reason it doesn't fit or time moves on, have I let them down somehow? Um, so, you know, it, do, it does, 
it does make me stop and think sometimes and people will tell me their stories and I know I can feel the tears I mean I can feel the tears in my eyes and you know but you, I've got to maintain your composure and yeah attempt to and there's that there's a peculiar line where um, if you're doing it on camera and it's part of a official kind of interchange um, I don't want to be the, the story's not me man no of course I mean and it leads me to the a, a, a personal question for you how do you not be completely jaded at a lot of the hypocrisy of the, mm. of the of the discourse does it ever get difficult to sort of maintain well no, i mean I, not really and and again i mean i, I know we're kind of framing framing everything through grenfell here but so i, I um i guess the, i'm just interested on a personal level because yeah. you know the type of journalism that i've done is obviously the other end of the spectrum from from what you do so. well i've done some of that too well, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll get to that. I'm sure we'll get to that. But yeah, I'm yeah. just, I, I am genuinely interested because, yeah. you know, the, the main thing that it seems to me that I always think is that it is a game, a lot of this, and it is disingenuousness is the word. You're allowed to lie because mm. it's because it's something that that's just what happens. But in these situations, it's that becomes horrifying. But it, but it's it's not just about lying. It's about, um, it's it's about um, what what politicians go on the record as standing for what they fight for what they choose not to fight for and being honest about the deals that they've done and the reasons they have or haven't championed certain causes so for example the day that corbyn turned up at the church yeah i was what's known as the pool journalist when all the broadcasters want an image or something but it's too busy for everybody to send the camera one there's like a rotor and one of okay. us will send a team yeah. and we'll then share the material with everybody which is just a very everyone wins okay so i happen to be the pool journalist that had to interview jeremy corbyn after he made his first official visit to grenfell and clearly there were a lot of uh labor supporters at that meeting right at, at that at, at that event and you know it, 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 it's no secret that that corbyn has this kind of grassroots appeal and a, and a lot of people genuinely like his policies and his demeanor and his of consistency course. yeah However, um, Labour have been in opposition for long enough now to have made a big impact on the framework for around safety for social housing. It is the fundamental role of both government and opposition government to do right by the people. So lots of people at this meeting raised an eyebrow when Corbyn obviously emoted and said, this is terrible, we must get to the bottom of it. And I said to him, well, hang on a minute. You, you guys have been on committees for a very long time and you're part of the problem that allowed this to happen. So don't come here and make political points out of this. So um, in terms of how my politics interact with my job, it is, it is absolutely my job as a journalist to have no favor to to any politician of any kind and to attempt at least to put the questions that the the british people want answered now i can't say that we succeed in that all the time but we try i try so how did you get into this game because <laughs> you know we've we've, yeah, yeah, we've, we've yeah. been uh, you've yeah. you've You've got a sporting journalism background as well, yeah, which you've uh, alluded to. 
um, and you've been doing this what like 16 years now 17 years yeah yeah so what, how did you how did you get how did you get here yeah um, uh, so I've been at Channel 4 News for 16 years done lots of different things um, and it, it, it probably helps if I do the potted history of how I started doing it so I I after I was lucky enough to go to university it was great had a great time did a very interesting but utterly useless liberal arts degree geography you know like, one of them yeah exactly you know yeah. what do I know can't can't count can barely spell but it's like I can... that surf degree isn't it that everybody did <laughs> I'd like to do I'd to do that <laughs> down at Falmouth <laughs> or Wheeze that was is that what you did no god yeah, I didn't right. I did English late which is yeah. Yeah, like, there you go same same thing three hours a week yeah um uh, so I kind of flitted around, travelled after uni and, uh, you know, just a couple of seasons and this and the other and um, uh, ended up working for a charity, Comic Relief, okay. which I really enjoyed. And the thing that I really enjoyed about them, although this wasn't my job, was the storytelling. They just told fantastic stories out in Africa, little kids crying, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I thought to myself, I that's what I want to do. I want to tell stories with, with words and pictures. Had you done anything like that before? I really enjoyed writing. So one of, I was, I was working as a writer for them. So, but, but, um, and I'd, um, done quite a lot of photography as a, as a student. So, you know, kind of yes, but no, not, you know, uh, so then I went back to, went back and did a post grad broadcast journalism, uh, diploma degree. Uh, and off the back of that, got a job at ITN. And off the back of that, um, ITN makes Channel 4 News, Channel, ITV News, Channel 5 News, a bunch of other stuff. What was the job at ITN that you uh, initially got? <laughs> so I, the summer that I left, ITN launched um, its 24-hour um, news channel. I should preface that with short-lived I was going to say, I was racking my brain. 24 hours. I, I don't remember that. You don't remember. It, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was so good that, the, you know, yeah, yeah. That they, they had to take pity on the other broadcasters and, and stop it. Get rid of it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's making uh, everyone look bad. <laughs> you got it. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, so I got a job doing that. It, it, you know, it was an entry-level journalism job okay. a, akin to working on a, national, on a regional paper or a trade uh, publication um, but it taught me a lot although I didn't really enjoy it because it was literally just turning no, it wasn't really journalism it was production more than anything else right um, uh, I had then I um, I had previously done some work experience at Channel 4 News an opening came up there as a sports producer um, which um, uh, I took uh, but no sooner did I end up at Channel 4 News as a sports producer 9-11 happened so for the next few years they didn't really want to do any sport so I made myself busy doing stuff that actually I'm much more interested in um, home affairs uh, for me at the time that was war on terror and domestic terror and criminal justice so just to be clear you you, you were, this is to camera reporting no I started it was a producer job actually okay. I started as a producer right. but one of the one of the impact one of the side benefits of being the sports producer right. was that i actually did a lot of reporting as well because okay. just because a lot of sport happens at the weekends and it, it's a kind of slightly weird way that the roles worked out i right. just started presenting and and reporting on sport as well okay 
Then I moved to Washington. To uh, a, a opening came up as the Washington producer, so um, ran our Washington office for two years. Wow. 2005. How's that? Amazing. How's that town? Best. Well, for me, it was it's the best job in the office, man. Really? Yeah, I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it for lo- for lots of reasons. For personal reasons, my mum's from DC. Okay. So it's a, it's it can be a hard town to crack. I've uh, seen House of Cards. You see. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Somewhere between the house cars and the West Wing, the I'm truth. Sure. The truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lies. The truth is in there somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and then, so while I was there, I, mean, I could go on for a long time, but I won't. I'm sure you've got much more interesting things you want to talk to me about. No, I mean, that, um, that, 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 you know, that must have been. A, so, what? You're a few years in, and then you get that gig. I mean, that's that's a great. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 you have to like politics, and you have to like American politics, and you have to kind of be up for. Um, playing slightly slightly inside the beltway you know it's a bit like working in westminster i'm sure yeah it's lots of intrigue and yeah. and, and, and it's the a whole, machine that you need to find a place in i imagine yeah and understanding the way the cogs work yeah. i mean it's 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 like washington is like a it is like the house of cards it's all about how close you are to the president and the right. white house absolutely and as soon as you understand that it all kind of makes sense and it's fun and as long as you don't take it too seriously but it but it can be it can be hard to operate as a British journalist. On the one hand, Americans are absolutely brilliant. They love TV. So just doing stuff with people in the street, they all want to talk, hey, 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 I've got something to say, you know. Right. And they're so far removed from the diffident Brits, so you put a camera in the Oh, I can't possibly talk to you. <laughs> you know, but they're they're really, really gregarious and they want to talk. But politicians, as soon as you know, you want to talk to a politician about something, they're very upfront. There's no votes for me in speaking to the British people, so I'm not gonna waste my time. You know, it's very, very segmented. Um, but anyway, I had a, I had a fantastic time. Travelled a lot, did a load of really interesting stories, a lot of difficult stories like Katrina. Yeah. Um, and also started reporting while I was there uh, as well. So that was that was really really challenging for me. So you and produced on Katrina. I well, so the Katrina story. This this is down in the reeds, but I'll tell you anyway. Um, it was a it was a bank holiday weekend at the end of the summer. Uh, very hot. The hurricane was on its way, and then it veered off into the Atlantic. Um, so everybody breathed a sigh of relief and said, don't worry, it's not going to happen. My correspondent at the time that I was producing um, had to go back to the UK. Uh, and because the hurricane was off, didn't matter, off he went. There was an environmental story that I wanted to do in the Rockies, in the um, northern New Mexico, southern Colorado border um it was about drilling gas beautiful area near taos who yeah, yeah, sh- yeah. you may New have Mexico, been to yeah, yeah. which i'd love to go to by it <clears throat> so we went there in the summer <clears throat> anyway so we'd gone off set this story up we were filming with a hunter who was uh, camped with us at thirteen thousand feet in 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 the in Valle vidal absolutely beautiful we were filming elk it was just the most lovely few days of, of, of filming in, 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 the, in the wilderness and someone gave us a plane, so we went up in a plane. And Anyway, obviously no phone reception. Got down to um, uh, got down to, to Taos, I think it was, because we had been uh, in, in the mountains, and suddenly my phone 
sparks into life there's 50 messages right where are you okay right well, the hurricane is happening. on its way yeah you need to get your, your ass to to new orleans right now so we hot-footed it down you know pedal to the metal down to albuquerque got the last plane to houston got off the plane at houston got the last car and started driving against the flow of i mean literally we're the only car driving going into, go, town. Going into the going into the storm got as far as baton rouge and it was just me and a cameraman, just two of us, because and we weren't, you know, and we'd been camping for four days, you know, in like dirty shorts, and you know, hadn't eaten a proper meal for ages. And there, there began a week of the most. Um, I mean, it was like working in a, like working in a in a war zone. There was no food, there was no water. There were desperate, desperate people, bodies floating in the, you know, and and risk of violence and and stuff. So it was very difficult. Um, uh, and because it was just he and I. I, I was reporting. We didn't have anyone else from Channel 4 News there, so I had to kind of man the operation until we could get get new teams in, and that took several days. As, as an ambitious reporter, it's probably a slightly banal question, but are, th- are those things opportunities? Absolutely. I mean, I mean that's, 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 that's yeah. obviously horrific. Yeah, no, it's very anchorman, very anchorman but yeah, scenario, of course they are. Of course they are, yeah. And, you know, you're a few years into your career. Yeah. Do, do, do you look at those things in that way? Well, they are career-defining moments. Um, in so far as, the, um, you know, when you ha- when you haven't slept for, in, in, in you know, in some ways, it's. I mean, clearly, I would never for a moment compare what I do to the risks that people in the military take. But if you break it down, you haven't slept for several days. Um, you are having to be militarily precise in terms of the logistics of what you can do because back in the day back in you know even though it was only 10 years ago you were very um dependent on satellite trucks and other resources you know the the, the kind of logistics that are set up by global news operations and we relied on our u.s partners to help us in that environment um uh, how you then operate you've got you know there's the time difference works against you so you're five or six or seven hours can't quite remember behind so that means you have to have completed your day's production for a seven o'clock broadcast by midday so you're getting up in the morning wherever it is that you've slept figuring out how far you can drive where you can get to what you can get um the camera operators filming it you're speaking to them about what they're filming, trying to remember the in- who said what in the interviews that you've done. You're then driving back to the satellite truck to feed the material back to London for somebody else to edit it because we didn't have the capacity to do it on the ground. Writing a script in your head, watching, you know, I, the, the, I remember very clearly the way that we did it. We'd film as little as we could, like 15 or 20 minutes of rushes because more than that becomes unwieldy. We'd get back to the satellite truck with about 45 minutes to air, He'd play his 20 minutes of rushes. I'd watch them. I'd write the script as he was playing it, send the script at the end of it live. An editor back in London would be, you know, we'd be talking to them about what was going to be in this piece. And they would then have 20 minutes to paint the script that I just sent with the pictures that we had just sent. And then they hit send and off it goes. So it's really, really high pressure. Again, you know, nothing on the experience of the people that have been through that but it's you know this stuff matters and if we don't tell these stories then what leverage is in is there on the people 
that allowed this to happen or things like that to happen to account for the failures and is this ultimately what got you into this line of work is that did did, did you did you start this career with that that social justice fairly principled social justice ideal in mind is that is that what attracted you to it yeah it it did and i mean i know that sounds really um you know the journal politicians who want to change the world and but but actually it is well I it's mean, an insult now isn't it social justice warrior it's, it's yeah a, it's, it's I, a right wing uh, kind of it's like snowflake isn't it it's like a real term of you know right wing abuse isn't it but yeah, you know yeah but it, but it, you know it's um you know okay look I'm lucky enough to choose to be to have chosen to be able to do that and to but um yeah you know I, I I'm not really that I'm not that and I never have been that interested in the you know latest fashion this that and the other i mean i look i like music and theater and sport and the rest of it like doing it and seeing it but in terms of something that wakes me up in the morning and makes me want to get and you know i work a bit harder well it's actually about trying to make the world a better place but you did nice uh nice link but you did spend quite a few years doing the sport thing, right? <laughs> I did yeah on yeah. and off on and off I've going kind of done it those, twice now going to all those world cups and, uh, <laughs> it's a and, hard life it must have been hell <laughs> yeah 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 well I, t- I tell you what Marseille last summer was not great oh yeah you were there weren't you were you there yeah. for the Russian yeah I was uh, right yeah yeah that was nice yeah god yeah. is that another type of uh, adrenaline fueled um, yeah story gathering really wasn't it because that was also yeah. pretty punchy wasn't it? it yeah there were a few moments where we had to be, make make haste yeah. get out get out of dodge man yeah. so, but, uh, you, so you were you were the the sports re- reporter correspondent yeah sports correspondent yeah. so how long did you do that for so uh, so after washington um came back uh, part of the deal for washington uh, my wife said i'll go to washington with you as long as when we, as long as we only go for two years and when i get on that plane to come home i'm pregnant and it was a kind of take it or leave it deal well, that's a, uh, I, I upheld my side of the bargain <laughs> She, yeah, she definitely uh, negotiated well. <laughs> um, uh, came back. We had another show. We had another show for a while on a on a on more four. So I anchored that for a bit, and um, then uh, 2010 uh, South Africa World Cup. I was like, wow, man. You know, I mean, I played f- football to. I mean, I I like to think it was a reasonable level, but maybe they just let me play because I tried really hard. I don't know. I always played football and loved it. Uh, first World Cup in Africa, which for me was always something that I was, you know, looked forward to. And when I, when I was playing, when I was first watching football, I wasn't born in this country. I was born in Zambia. When I was, you know, grew up in this country. There weren't that many black players, um, and you know, football has fundamentally changed, and kind of, Af- you know, African yeah, football 80s, is really important now. In the 80s, you know, well, there was in, in the certainly in the English leagues. There's literally a handful of black, high-profile yeah, the, 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 pi- the pioneers, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and they were black British, and then you got the yeah. influx of African players. But everyone, always, you know, Pele always said Africa would be the future. Blah, blah. Yeah. So anyway, the reason I wanted to go and cover the South Africa World Cup was was partly because I like football. Um, I, I would describe myself now as a very much lapsed England fan. Any, like everyone. Any hope I ever had that I mean, it's just gone, man. I, you know what I mean. 
but uh, but I wanted to go to the World Cup in Africa. Just everything about it. Um, I'd spent quite a bit of time in South Africa in the in the mid nineties. Um, as a student, kind of interviewed Desmond Tutu for a student magazine and spent a few months in Cape Town in the Cape Flats hanging out with these kind of weird hip-hop outfits and drugs gangs and stuff. So South Africa, I've just, I've always found it to be a fascinating place politically, socially, culturally. I was born in Zambia, which is, Lusaka was the, um, was where the ANC were exiled to okay. during the height of apartheid. So. Right there's a kind of background to South, Southern African politics yeah. and post-colonial politics quite interesting. Anyway, wanted to go to South Africa really as much to do it as a social cultural story as a sports story. Did it. It was really interesting. Came back. 2012 was on the, on the horizon. Um, and the, you know, kind of British, the England's, um, the bid to host the World Cup here. There were a whole load of really, really quite significant sports stories coming up. So good time to be in that in that role, basically. A really good, a really good time. Um, it's a hard job, and the really big picture stories that matter in sport—doping, cheating, FIFA corruption—are really they're basically impossible to do unless you're an insider, or unless you dedicate your life to it. And like somebody like David Kahn. Yeah, for example, David Conn is a fantastic example. Very, very deter. I mean, you know, he's been on Hillsborough, for example. Yeah. from from the get go, man. That's his. I mean, that's his thing, isn't it? You that's know? his thing. But he's but he's also done loads of good stuff on on those other big picture. Stories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that that if you, uh, I mean, we're just using him as an example. But like, that, that's yeah. his focus, isn't it? You know? David Conn, David Walsh, um, you know, all the names. It's very hard to develop the contacts and get any leverage in the world of sport unless you are permanently doing sport if you're going to games going to conferences going to stuff and you need an output for that so bbc news for example they they will always get in sports stories on their bulletins but we never really did it and so it just became kind of unsustainable in a sense we could kind of play and turn up to the big events the big fifa conferences and stuff i'd inveigled once when, when the, the, do you remember when um, the FIFA guys were arrested yeah. in Zurich so we yeah. were there for that and I managed to smuggle myself into the into the conference hall just before Blatter gave his big address and you know kind of doorstepped him and filmed it on my iPhone and smuggled the pictures out it was, it was, the, the, it's a nice story actually I, I think it's nice the Swiss are very rule abiding as you may have discovered yeah certainly yeah uh over and, the years uh, so I we, we were all trying to find Blatter and Blatter Blatter wasn't giving interviews because he didn't have to and um, but we knew where he was going to talk and um, maybe because I'm a black journalist actually I, you know I was kind of dressed reasonably smartly and there were a lot of African delegates around because Blatter's power base was Africa I went up to the delegates entrance to the conference and walked in and they said, have you got accreditation? Now, I did have accreditation. I had journalist accreditation. What they should have said was, have you got delegates accreditation? But they didn't. They said, have you got accreditation? I said, yes, I have accreditation. And they said, through you go, sir. So then found myself a nice quiet corner, waited for Blatter, did my thing. As I did it, obviously the goons then see it, the security guys turn up and say, what are you doing? And I said, I was just talking to Set Blatter. And they said, okay, Swiss, 
very, very rule-abiding, very polite. At which point I exited the situation. No drama, no bother. And we had what, you know, it wasn't quite an interview with Blatter, but it was me saying to him, when are you going to resign? Don't you feel responsible? Da, 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 da. But in a sense, that's as kind of close as an organisation that doesn't do sport all the time could ever get to people like that because we're just not, we're not rights holders. We're not, we don't have corporate access or the big organizations that pay for you know pay fifa good money for world cup rights they'll they'll get interviews but it's a very very locked down area of journalism and um because i just you know partly i wasn't that interested in i was gonna say it sounds like for you it definitely had a shelf life yeah so i'm very glad to have moved on yeah so for somebody that's listened to this that that seen you followed your career or like is interested in a career like yours what what advice would you would you offer for that like what what kind of qualities do you think you need to to do what you do you got to listen to what you want to do really you know have it, I, I i'm kind of aware that i perhaps have been somewhat disparaging towards um uh people that want to cover fashion or straight sport but actually that's absolutely not the case because the, the you know i really enjoy i enjoy consuming that stuff i read loads um and you really tell you know you know when you're reading something that somebody's into so it's about knowing what you're into and following that now at the same time obviously if there are opportunities that come up go for them but specializing is even more important than it than it's ever been now you've got to think about what can i add that the next journalist will not have um in terms of the kind of digital space, obviously the barriers to entry, in some ways they're really high because uh, there aren't that many jobs. But on the other hand, the kit is ever more affordable. Anyone can be a publisher. Anyone can write a blog. Anyone can have a YouTube channel. So it's about finding your thing and just sticking with it and being passionate, man. Passion, passion you, you know what I'm talking about, man. You know, passionate stuff is great, right? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly my, that was definitely my path into, into yeah. the game for sure. One of the reasons we obviously know each other, and we'll we'll get to this, is uh, is through action sports. Hey, um, and I do know that you've tried through your through when you've been working on sport. You know, you've you've definitely tried to get action sports stories through the door, if you like. Mm. How difficult is that? It's tough because people don't understand it, and it's very reductive. Um, so, um, it's typically you know it, it, on the on the kind of super um kind of risky side of things there's a very reductive analysis of what is risk which which you know you did really nicely with sasha because actually sometimes it takes an hour's conversation to explore some of that stuff um and so the kind of incremental achievements of people I don't know, for example, Alex Honnold, who yeah, yeah, nailed yeah. El Cap. I mean, there you go. There's a classic example of a, <laughs> an action sports story that's, that's cut through, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, why, why didn't we didn't? We probably should have done that, but we didn't. I'd have liked to have done it. it but in that context, it's still quite niche, though, isn't it, really? Because still, there's still a few hoops to jump through to sort of yeah. explain why people should care. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah, but we did it without ropes, and it's this, and it's that, and it's that. You know, it's not... Yeah. You know, I always think that the, the ones it's like big wave yeah you know, I'd, I'd managed to do a big wave story with andrew cotton who you've okay. done on this blog yeah on yeah. this bit on this podcast yeah yeah okay so you did quite yeah but i'll tell you the, how it happened actually so uh i had um 
We'd gone to do the British Disabled Ski Team trials. That's a great story. Um, they, they were out of the the Brits and that, that's, that's an inspiring group of people yeah 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 amazing isn't it yeah it's really. amazing and I, have you skied I've, I ended up because no one else really on my team oh, could man. ski I ended up shoot skiing behind an attorney and people and doing the just getting some shots of the sit skiers yeah, they it's, haul it's, man it's they haul it's incredible <laughs> it's like when you see blind skiers as well isn't yeah. it? it's just it's just like wow yeah. people are incredible yeah they are it's amazing man it's really it's kind of life affirming isn't it yeah definitely um so anyway, I'd, I'd, got, I'd gone to do this the winter story and the cameraman is a massive surfer and he said, man, we've got to do a surf story, got to do a surf story. I was like, yeah, yeah, you find the story where it's, let's do it. Anyway, a couple of years ago, there were a load of massive storms and, um, and I was busy with stuff, but the same cameraman who I'd been away with said, oh, man, look, it's going off on the west coast of Ireland. We've got to get up there. Let's, let's go and do that story. So I mentioned this idea to... The bosses, I said, look, there's one, you know, everyone in the country is moaning about the weather. Let's go and do a story on the one group of people in the country. Who are loving who, the weather. Who are, who are really excited about the weather. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, yeah, love it. So literally, jump, just like wave chasing ourselves, man. We were on the plane that night to Dublin, drove over to Mullag Moorhead, you know, got there at three in the morning, had two hours kit, met Cotton in the hotel bar in the morning, did the dawn patrol and just kind of filmed with them for half a day. They gave us some archive stuff. Bish bash bosh, it was on the news that night, man. Brilliant. Um, but um, it's, you know, it's kind of not, in, in a sense that story is instructive because it wasn't, it, it was about the weather. It was about the weather, not yeah, the surfing. Yeah. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Well, it's, that, it's, that, <laughs> it's, it's that thing, like, you, like you're saying, that, that a big mainstream audience can latch onto yeah. and some kind of like, understanding yeah. isn't it yeah 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 some kind of resonance man yeah well it's by the yeah. olympics you know olympics comes around and yeah snowboarding hey gold medal i mean it's that simple isn't it yeah you know you can relate to that yeah, yeah you yeah, might not understand yeah. why they're earning it but yeah you, you know the snowboarder won the gold medal or yeah right yeah so it is hard so i think a good point to talk about your uh your experiences with action sports really so you're so you mentioned earlier that you were br initially brought up in in zambia is that right i was born in zambia and then we moved to northern ireland when i was six and we traveled around a lot and i ended up in london when i was about eight okay yeah so skiing doesn't immediately spring to mind no in that, in, that in, in, in either zambia or northern ireland or london so how so how, where did that come from so it it came from um my mum needing me to go and find a way to get rid of my excess energy in the summer right and the Greenwich Council used to run these brilliant sports courses it was like two quid or something and I'd done badminton and I'd done table tennis and squash and football and all the you know everything and then the brochure I remember it really clearly the brochure came through the door and I used to anticipate this what sports am I going to do this summer right and the brochure came through the door in June and there there was this thing for skiing I was like what I think I've heard about this skiing lark. I mean, what is it? And um, it was a dry slope course at Woolwich Barracks. Woolwich Barrack. Woolwich is a you know pretty kind of the glamour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woolwich ain't Kensington, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was just it was a short bus ride. Yeah. Right. Um, Woolwich Barracks is where Lee Rigby was. Yeah, of course. Um, murders. 
Anyway, so I rock up not really knowing anything about this man, but just wanted to give it a go. And it was literally, the, there were two slopes. One was about 10 metres long, and the other was 25 if you're lucky. It was lumpy, it was broken, the dendex was ripped, it was covered in oil, it was a rope toe that was kind of, you know, kept breaking down. People were falling off and breaking, getting their fingers and stuff jammed in the dendex. Sounds whatever. like a dry slope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, you Part know, for the course. You've been, you've been there, man. Yeah. And I just absolutely loved it, man. I was I was hooked. I was like, man, this is amazing. This is so. So, how, so much how old fun. were you at this at this time? Uh, Eleven, twelve, right. something like that. I was, you know, yeah. And what year yeah. is this? Um, as in, how old am I? Uh, this was would have been mid. This would have been early eighties, eighty, eighty four. Okay. Eighty four, eighty five, eighty six. So proper window into a different world, basically. Yeah, yeah, and and you know because, you know, it was Woolwich Barracks. It was squaddies, man, yeah. having a laugh. Um, that so it was an entirely normal, natural. It, the, the, there was none of the kind of Sloan set about, you know, the Sloanie set about my introduction introduction to it. Yeah. But anyway, I really loved it, and I was like, Mum, I want to go on the school ski trip. And she was right. like, Well, that's three hundred and twenty quid. Yeah. Man. Do you know what I mean? Um, you need to get yourself a paper round. If you get a paper round, I'll match you. She, which was brilliant. I'll, I'll pay half of it if you save up because that shows me that you're serious. Yeah. And I was like, thanks, man. That's amazing. Thank you so much. So I paid for half the ski trip and just couldn't believe it, man. The first time I went to the mountains, Cormier, we went to on a school trip and it just blew my mind. And it's ever since then, um, I've tried my utmost to get out to the, get out to the hills. Uh, and um, uh, through that, mountain biking and and hiking i'm a you know i'm i'm a i'm a horrible climber but i try and uh i'm an even worse snowboarder because by the time by the by the time people were learning to snowboard i was kind of just about a good enough skier to never make it worthwhile to learn how to snowboard yeah that's a bit how i'm with skiing really definitely past the point where i can be bothered learning <laughs> going through the <laughs> the pain i can kind of ski but you know yeah. i can snowboard so but yeah, I, don't, I don't need to learn that again yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah. You, but you did a couple of seasons you saying yep so i did um when i finished my a levels um i went to the states for a year right to hang out with the american family get jobs and the rest of it but i did my first season in tahoe when I was 18 wow which was a really interesting experience not least because I was like the youngest person there and a Brit no other Brits everyone else was you know obviously drinking and the rest of it and yeah. every time I went to a bar at night I'd never know whether I was going to be taking the long walk home on my own because I couldn't get in because I didn't have ID no way right so right. it was a weird experience yeah. man. And, you know being an 18 year old here and yeah I mean especially 18 year old in Europe I mean no one's IDing you let no. alone the UK man but yeah in the States it's a bit State different very different so I did a season in Tahoe, and then um, when I was at uni, um, my one of the guys on my on my halls um, was kind of one of the extended Pete Turvey lot. Okay. Uh, and so he would go over to Chamonix every winter whenever he could, you know, blag a lift. And if, I went with him a few times. Right. Stayed in the Caravan of Love. All okay. That, you know, in the Lavonchet right. place. So you would have met Chris Moran at this point. I, I'd met Chris and kind of Johnny Barr, yeah, and yeah. Matt Lowbridge, and a yeah. bunch of old other Steve people. Steve Bailey was probably around. Steve Bailey, well, yeah, I don't think that I, was all I don't our think first season. That 
those boys. Yeah, that's got to be 92, I reckon. That would have been 92. Yeah. Yeah, 92 and 93 I was there. It's like 18 people in the caravan, isn't it, or something? <laughs> yeah. I've heard those stories. Yeah. Right. Uh, but but it was weird because I was always, I always skied and I, I always, I kind of grew up skiing with snowboarders. Yeah. And I always really enjoyed it because they just had more fun. Yeah. But I mean, it's you know? bollocks all that, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, exactly. It's just, uh, you know, you just, just basically with like-minded mates and you go up and you build a jump. No one cares. And you have a, and you have a laugh, man. You yeah. laugh at each, at each so other. the whole time living with skiers and <laughs> literally was never an issue. <laughs> It's just bizarre, isn't it, that whole thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I did that and then uh, did, a, did a, a winter with no snow in Salback when I finished, when I graduated. That was dreadful, man. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. No, it wasn't. So uh, what did you like about it? What was the appeal? About doing seasons or about being in just, the mountains? Just the whole thing, really. You know, the, the, obviously it hooked you at that age. Yeah. Because you still, you're still doing it. Yeah. You, you know, you have involvement in... in the industry insofar as you're like you know you've been a judge at Kendall you know yeah, you, you, yeah. you've got an active involvement in this world so yeah. what, what what was it back then that that you know that really sunk its claws I, in you? I, I would like to give you some really romantic communing with nature finding my soul type answer but I just like going fast man <laughs> that's I just, a good answer I just love it man I love hauling and you know it's I've hurt myself a lot I mean I've, I haven't done a Sasha hand but I've broke my arm twice in the same season I've mashed my ACL three times I've done all kinds of bad things concussion hospital you know blood wagon all that lot um, but it's all worth it it's all worth it but you've had a lot of injuries, so you you um, you mentioned broken arms, but the, the the big thing you've been dealing with is your knee, right? So, yeah. So how's yeah. that going? Uh, it it has it was a big deal. It has gone about as well as it possibly could have, given my age and <laughs> and the fact that I've got a job and two kids. Um, I ruptured my ACL playing football when I was eighteen, and had had knee problems for a while anyway. I'm slightly hypermobile, so things go. My ligaments just wear, uh, wear out a bit too quickly. And it was fixed badly, and I damaged it again, and had it uh, had several arthroscopies to remove debris and whatnot. And um, it, it was fixed again, and then over time that wore out, and the knee got more and more arthritic. Um, and I'd been trying to rehab it with a really really good um uh specialist rehab gym and a couple of years ago uh just i just couldn't i could never get it because it was mechanically so deficient i could never get it strong enough to really protect it and the doctors were were very frank and said okay um look you're 42 at the time i was um you need a knee replacement because the surface of the knee is gone but you're too young to have one of those because they don't last very long and you won't be able to do the things that you like doing. Yeah, you don't want to hear that really, do you, uh, um, at 42? Not really. No. It's not a great thing. No, no. You know. So, But you, you, you've had it done, though? Well, they said you could have one, but we don't think you should. Right. Um, so there are some options. You can continue to just battle against it and keep it as strong as you can, but as we've seen, it's, you know, it's not really working. Or you can just do nothing and have the knee replacement whenever. 
or we can do a really complex set of other surgeries to try and stabilize and re-establish re mechanical integrity and then you can get the knee strong and then actually if you look after yourself then maybe you can put off a knee replacement until you're in your 60s in which case it kind of matters less because you don't need as much functionality. So we thought about it really hard, talked to lots of people about what it would entail, the risks, the amount of rehab and decided to go for it. So I had a third ACL reconstruction because they'd taken so much tissue from the left from the left knee the first two times they had to take that from the right. Um, they, I had knee problems in the right as well so they as they were going in anyway they tidied that up, did a whole load of kind of industrial, you know they got the got the industrial shaver out and shaved down the surface of the joint and they also did something called a, a, a tibial osteotomy. I, I'd become very, very knock-kneed. Wow. Which uh, just, I mean, literally everything was failing. Right. Uh, and that's very bad for lots of reasons. Yeah, and yeah. That, as you can imagine, your hips, your, everything, everything's out of kilter. Yeah. Okay. So they straightened the leg out, but to do that, they had to basically cut a, a wedge out of the tibia, which is the main load-bearing bone in the, in the car, in the, below the knee, okay. and bend it, pin it, plate it. So there were effectively three, four surgeries done at the same time and it required the better part of a year of massive physio, three hours a session, uh, started off four days a week, went down to three days a week. I had no idea at the beginning of that whether I was going to be able to ski again, um, but I had good advice, went to see Mike Lushmore, I don't know if you know him, he's the... No, he's the, not, don't know him. So he's the, the British ski team doctor. Okay. Uh, and he was encouraging all the doctors around. We were like, no, you know, if you nail it on the physio, we have every faith that you can get back there. Um, but I didn't, di kind of didn't, I know my own psychology. And what I usually do is just, I have a rule. Every time you finish a holiday, make sure you've booked the next one before you land. That's a pretty good rule. <laughs> <laughs> I might steal that. Right. <laughs> Just because I kind of do it anyway, but I didn't call yeah, it. Well, you rule. do that for work, right? Yeah. I mean, that's part of your job. Oh, I've got to go on some work yeah. trip to go yeah. to wherever. You know. I'm going to start saying that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a rule but, I've got. But it's a good, and also the advantage is you get your flights for nothing because they're a year in advance, man. Do you know yeah, know? yeah, yeah. No, I, I fully condone um, that. Yeah. But uh, I had not done that in this instance. Doctor said, "Look, actually, I, we're, we've, we we're done with you, man. You you're on the right track." And if you want to try and go skiing, please take it easy, but right. go for it. So I rang my good friend who lives in uh, Bravant okay. and said, can I just... Nice bed yourself back in easy. <laughs> ease it back in, easy back yeah, in. And yeah. he said, well, yeah, funny enough, Bravant, yeah. the, 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 the days that you're thinking of coming, I've got to be in London. So why don't I, well, I'll stay with you. We'll get the you know fly over and literally he'd left his van in geneva right we jumped in his van we drove didn't go to Bravant. we drove to les Uches nice and just uh, honestly man those first few turns oh after, that must have been brilliant and it was and you know it was a dreadful season this winter it was it had just dumped it was literally the was first this in january this was the back end of january i yeah, was there yeah. at the same time <laughs> I, I i rode the back of the tour that day ah and how was it was amazing yeah yeah i went up with a couple of friends of mine on the off chance and we got to the top and uh, they opened the back chair and there's about 10 of us lapping that back chair oh. and I did a lot of seasons in Chamonix and that never happened and, wow. and like you say by all accounts last winter was like yeah, yeah, it was, the it was, worst winter ever so I yeah. fluked it really yeah. but yeah you know one of those days when you remember why Chamonix why you do is it. so good really yeah right so yeah. how is it um, it's um, so I've been doing a lot of cycling 
right. Cy- cycling is cycling is the only sport I can now do where I can give it 110 percent. Okay. Where I can I can taste you know you know when you taste blood in your mouth because you just, and you, the, you your vision has gone down to that tiny little spot in the center and you can't concentrate and you're gonna fall over and you're just hanging on which I used to I used to get that playing football chasing the ball hard tackles da, da, da. Um, but I can't do that anymore because of the impact and even skiing I ha- you know I have to be really careful powder's fine just because you know as long as I don't try and do something stupid yeah um, um, but yeah, no, it's okay. It, you know, it, it hurts. I have to be careful. It swells up a little bit. Right. I ice it if I'm doing something big to just manage it with paracetamol and ibuprofen if I know I'm going to be doing something uh, aggressive. But um, yeah, the skiing was amazing. We spent spent a couple of days just easing in and then just got a bit bit more ambitious every day. Went to see some friends down in La Plan. Right. Went over the backside, did a nice little bit um, uh, on the glaciers. And then came back. I had a morning left, and a bunch of mates were doing a little tour up um, uh, just by the back of Valocine on the other side, on the on the on the Brevent Massive side. Okay. We just did a little two-hour tour up, and you know, obviously, fifteen minutes down. Great. Um, and um, and it was yeah, just it was amazing, man. That was that was the kind of best bit. I knew you know, kind of skinning up for a couple of hours is obviously reasonably tough, and yeah. then. But it held up. Held up fine. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really, really happy and really hoping um, to just keep it managed through cycling. And I have to go to the gym and do really boring stuff and, you know, work on my glutes. And yeah, I mean, it's so dull. That's kind of just a bit of a penalty of aging, isn't it, really? (laughs) I started doing yoga. Oh, yeah. Yoga's amazing, but it's boring. Well, I just never thought I'd end up doing yoga yeah. and area i'm doing yoga but yeah. you know it seems to work it's the whole so. stretching thing though you kind of realize when you get old you've got to stretch now yeah exactly <laughs> exactly so have you got any any trips planned that I've, you've, that you've um yeah. you know that you've been kind of thinking that you might not be able to do but now you can um so this this year was great the other the other thing i managed to do was take the kids skiing for the first time okay they're now old enough so i know you asked what i've got planned but just I didn't think I wasn't sure whether I'd be able to do that. Right. Um, uh, in terms of kind of am- ambitious stuff, um, uh, funnily enough, this Saturday, where I'm started doing the Dunwich Dynamo, which is an overnight bike ride from London to Suffolk Coast, which is like oh, a, I've heard of that. Yeah, it's quite, it. it's come quite, and do it. It's quite a long one, isn't it? And it's, yeah, it's about 150 miles. Wow. Well, we have to cycle back to Ipswich as well to get the train. Oh, but, right, you get, that's but, you, a proper, but you get a dawn swim. Proper job. So you leave at midnight, do you? Uh, a bit earlier. Probably going to leave about eight, I think. And you and you cycle overnight. Cycle And you overnight. get there at dawn. Get wow, there, yeah, early doors. Do it before. Never done it, but looking forward to it. You know, road That'd biking, mammal. That's me now. It's lycra. Love lycra, man. Obligatory when you're in your forties. <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> that's just what you have to do. Um, what else? Have I, I'm uh, hopefully uh, doing a mountain bike uh, South Downs Way job in September. Got okay. a weekend booked in with the lads. Um, just to, you know, two days. Hopefully camp out if it's good weather. Otherwise, B&B it. Nice. Um, and then we've got a boys ski weekend, um, which might be Verbier, might be back to Cormier, might go somewhere new. I don't know. Nice. Uh, but the, the date's locked down on that one. 
and then a bunch of other things going to see some friends in Geneva and Chamonix in a few weeks and and Snowdonia for two weeks at the end of August nice yeah it's all nice. kind of mountainy yeah yeah love yeah. mountains man and are you still involved with Kendall Kendall Mountain Festival because you you were the head juror is that right so I'm ho- I'm hoping to be um, uh, that part of that relationship kind of came via Channel 4 we should probably explain what that is right so it's Kendall Mountain Festival yeah and it's it's a film festival, right? It's 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 more than a film festival. Yeah, uh, it is. It began as a film festival. It's become a massive social event where yeah. um, most of the kind of players in the um, in the kind of arguably global, but certainly British outdoor um, industry get together it makes it sound like a really corporate thing it's not no the it's lovely grassroots isn't yeah. it the, the lovely thing is actually it's one of those places you know obviously Oz Turk and all these people make these amazing films or Tommy Caldwell who's there last year and yeah. you know and uh, they come and present their films and do talks um, but they then go to the bar and everyone goes to the bar and you know weekend warriors and their kids and their auntie who just liked the film that you'd sent her on Vimeo and thought I'll come down to the film festival everyone just goes and mingles and it's a bit like the equivalent of going to the Olympics and bumping into Usain Bolt in the bar it doesn't happen in that world but in this in our world yeah, it's a very, it does it's a very appealing part of, of this world isn't it yeah you know it yeah. is pretty democratic like that yeah you can yeah it's like I was at the Brits and yeah you know all the GB Park and Pipe athletes are there and yeah. you know you've got the Ski Sunday guys there and everyone's just yeah. milling around very approachable Yeah, it's nice I think it's a good thing I, you know I think there's something there's an essential there's an essential nature about this world that it's, it's a, it is essentially participative yeah that the people that are interested in it also do it um, which makes it as you say very democratic and also like yeah for example if you look at football there's, there's basically an intrinsic barrier, isn't it? You know, you're watching professional yeah. footballers, you're watching professional cycling. Yeah, you've got stuff like La Tap or whatever, but th- there is that inbuilt barrier, isn't there? Yeah. 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 But, it, but anything else, you know, kind of free riding or climbing or cycling or mountain biking, you know, if you're good enough, you can do it. If your risk horizon is, if you know, if you're willing to take that risk, no one's going to... You Stop. can go and do it. You can go and do it, You man. can judge yourself. You can test yourself against... <laughs> yeah. 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 Now, obviously, for most mere mortals... It's, you're not going to do that. You're not going to... No. no. You can say that's madness. Yeah. But but it's nice to enjoy other people, you know, vicariously enjoy their success. So, uh, what, so what was your... Um, so, you said the candle involvement came about through Channel 4? <coughs> yeah. Sorry, you asked that, and I completely failed to answer it. Um, uh after um, after 2012 uh, obviously Channel 4 are the Paralympic broadcaster and um, my uh, the head of news and current affairs at Channel 4 said to me can you do a bunch of stuff do more disabled sport please on the news absolutely fine brilliant and I kind of thought about it and immediately went to the adventure space and the and the and, and the outdoor sports space, just kind of because that's where my heart is. And um, also, I wasn't sure there was that much appetite in finding the next 
I mean, as great as Ellie Simmons and the rest are, I just wasn't, you know, we'd just done the Paralympics. Do we really want to know who the prospects for 2016 are? I don't think we do. Let's do something else. So um, I have a bit of a kind of addiction for adventure film. And I, uh, and I had seen this film not long hence about a, um, a sit skier called Josh Dueck who, I don't know if you remember, he made an amazing film called The Freedom Chair. I haven't seen it, actually. I'll make sure you see it. Okay. We'll put a link up, maybe. Definitely. And then he'd done a, and he'd done a, a um, sequel to it um, where he pops the first backflip in a sitski. Um, Great. On camera. It's a beautiful piece of work. Brilliant. Man. Very amazing. Yeah, really short. Very, but it's, you know, it's not bling. It's not kind of... Yeah. Uh, it's just the, the efforts that... And um, his story, very briefly, he was a, he was a pretty good free skier, Canadian, um, broke his back, snapped his spine. Um, skiing was everything he'd ever done and known. So he he um, learned to see it skits, learned to ski in a sit ski. But that was a very different vibe. It was lycra and gates and and competition rather than free skiing. Yeah, and he did really well. Won you know X Games medals represented Canada in the Paralympics uh, and um, but he wanted to get back to his roots of free skiing hence the films anyway I contacted him because I thought this would be he that's the kind of story I want to do commissioner said do more disability sport this guy's just done this amazing film of doing a backflip in a sit ski let's do that because that's stuff that mainstream news hasn't seen right yeah right easy easy here and he got back straight away and said, oh, well, actually, I'm going to be in the UK soon. I'm going to be at this festival. Why don't you meet me there and I'll, we'll do something there? I said, yeah, great idea. So made the connection through him with Kendall. And they were brilliant and really friendly and really helpful. And I just, I was only there for a night. I was like, wow, man, this is cool. The, like the, the, um, uh, there, were just, there were loads of interesting uh, people there. The, brown, the night that I went, the Brownlee brothers were doing a talk. You know, so It's just, a real diverse line. You've, yeah, you've been yeah. there, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, then it turned out the next year that Channel 4 were sponsoring one of the film categories in the film competition. So I got in touch with the guy at Channel 4 and said, look, I'd really love to help. And he said, well, look, why don't I introduce you? Maybe you can be on the judging panel. And then it just became a thing where I was hosting, they do like a media panel with, um, with uh, aspiring filmmakers and a, a kind of... Um, forum where they bring people together to talk about filmmaking and yeah. and current and current issues and um and yeah i've been been involved with them in that capacity and and chair of judges for the last few years so i don't i, don't, I mean i'd love to continue to be involved but uh, it's obviously up to them to invite me <laughs> again so what um and what filmmakers have you been admiring them recently so from from last year um there were some really really beautiful standout pieces some of them were just literally works of art man and uh in fact one of the most stunning creations in in the genre was a film called joanna have you seen it no you're putting <sighs> me to shame here <laughs> <laughs> it's really no, sure i've not seen that one either i'll i'll make sure you get the link yeah it's really it's um made by a uh ad man and not that there's that's casting aspersions. It's a, a three-minute film. They usually know their game. They know, yeah. It's super, super production. Yeah. Three-minute film of a Finnish um, 
uh, free diver who does cold water therapy. And she came across the cold water therapy because she'd had a necrosis in her leg and it was just part of her getting better. Wow. Anyway, it's basically just this, her story, very sparse. Um, I wish I could remember the name of the filmmaker. I'm really sorry. And it's this just, is what the show notes are for. <laughs> <laughs> and it just shows her in the frozen lake digging a hole diving down and wow. coming up and flipping and then it's I mean it's literally three minutes her narrative but it's beautiful and it is so far away from the gonzo triple backflip yeah sure. look how big my cajones are yeah right um so I really you know and I I so I really enjoy I really enjoy films that do something different that tell me something different the Jordan Manley Arcteric stuff is fantastic yeah they were great they were great I mean that's always been a bit of a pet theme of mine the lack of narrative in, yeah. in action sports films really so when when one comes comes along yeah they tend to stand out don't they really yeah absolutely have you it? seen La, La List La List I uh, the um, Jeremy Hines. The Hines yes I have indeed I yeah. thought that was great yeah it's really good I, th- I love that film yeah and uh, man he's doing stuff I mean I mean literally nailing GS turns on a 50 degree yeah I mean it's crazy <laughs> it's crazy <laughs> And I love the way they contextualise it by showing the old boys doing the jump turns on those things. Yeah, all the kind, of, yeah, all the Patrice Valençon and the kind of yeah, old. Yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant, brilliant film. Yeah, loved it. Great. Yeah. So you, so hopefully you'll be back at, at Kendall. I'd, yep, I'd, I'd, I'd very much, um, very much like to continue that relationship. Um, you know, I do. It's a, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of, lot of watching stuff. Um, but it's good fun, and you and and, and sometimes you know sometimes the films that really end up resonating. Again, one of the award winners last year um, was a film about a boy who goes mountain biking with his dad, um, and it's just a lovely, intimate portrayal of of biking in the Lake District. You know, it's not not bling at all, but yeah. it's really nicely made. Tom Seep, it's called. Okay. Well, we'll definitely get um, get a few of these in the show notes for sure. So, what's next? It's what, adventure-wise, just generally, really. I mean, obviously, yeah. your work is is fairly yeah dependent on on um, <coughs> excuse me so on on the stories that come along. But yeah. do, you, do you see yourself doing this? this role for for a while longer so I, i'm really really happy to be back doing straight news uh and um all those big stories that we've been talking about that have that have dominated recently so grenfell and the terrorist attacks these are really important things and they fundamentally affect all of our lives in ways that we perhaps don't like to acknowledge and um so there's a lot of work in in trying to tell not just those stories but but other stories around inequality and justice and it's it's you know if we get it right it it will have an impact i think they're pretty good words to end on kami <laughs> that's been brilliant thank you thanks so much for uh, for joining me a pleasure so there you go that was my interview with kami and i hope you enjoyed it Plenty of thought-provoking and funny stuff in there, I thought. I think you can tell we had a really good laugh doing that one. Um, We always enjoy each other's company, and yeah, it was great. As a journalist, I particularly enjoyed his insights into how a story like Hurricane Katrina comes together, and I think you could really uh, feel his enthusiasm 
on working on those uh, big picture stories. I also found it really fascinating him talking about the balance between dealing with the bigger issues and the individual stories, particularly when it comes to something like Grenfell Tower. Um, so thank you, Kami. Thanks for coming on. Massively, massively appreciated. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And yes, let's have another beer soon. So elsewhere, I've got a few housekeeping issues to take care of. And as seems to be the case, I'm putting these in the outro. So um, you can ignore it if you want, but you might be interested. I've had a few people mention this playback issue in the Apple podcast app with the dreaded this episode is temporarily unavailable message appearing. And I've had that a few times on podcasts that I listen to that aren't just my own. And yeah, it's really annoying. I've got to be honest, I've got no idea why it's happening. and It, it does appear to be happening on mine. Uh, I've looked online. It seems as though people are putting it down to bugs in the Apple podcast app. Could be. I mean, in any case, it usually sorts itself out after a while. But if it happens and you really can't wait... You can just head over to my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com and there you can get the direct SoundCloud embed or you can just get the SoundCloud app on your phone and you can find me on there and you can just listen straight on there or you could just download Overcast or Stitcher who are their two free podcast apps which seem to me to have a much more elegant interface than Apple Podcasts anyway and they're uh, they're free and you can find me on there. So... There are solutions and hopefully some geek out there will uh, work out why it's happening and put a stop to it. I mean, it ain't going to be me. So uh, let's hope it doesn't happen too much. So elsewhere, I've been listening to some of the other podcasts that cover a bit of the same ground as me. And there's some really good ones out there. So I thought I'd recommend a few of them. If you like what I'm doing, you'll probably enjoy Wild Ideas Worth Living by Shelby uh, Stanger. I think you pronounce it. Shelby's a US uh, journalist who's based each episode of hers around a wild idea, as she puts it, that has led somebody to have a fascinating life. It's very, very nicely done, I must say. There are some great guests. There's definitely some crossover with what I'm doing, which I think is great. And um, obviously, it's much more UK-centric. And Shelby, obviously, is very involved in the US outdoor uh, community and industry. So that, you know, there's there's a lot of guests in the, in that area. But I think you'll really dig it. So check that one out. Then there's the prolific Kyle Tierman, which I think is how you pronounce it. Now, Kyle's a surfer who obviously is really good at surfing, uh, who's put out over 50 podcasts and it's the Kyle Tierman show. I really like it. It's really good. He's got a great manner and uh, he's had a wide range of guests. If you're into surfing, you're going to like it. He covers a lot of surfing stuff. He does one every week, but he also has some fairly out there guests on there and he covers a lot of fairly esoteric subject matter so yeah check it out i think it's really worth a look that one finally there's the monday mass with chris coat which is quite notorious weekly roundup of mainly u.s industry news which is always worth a listen if that's your bag it's very uh topical every week and chris yeah chris is a bit of a legend on the on the u.s scene so check that one out i'd love to hear of any more recommendations so uh, let me know if you've got any so next week I'm off to Newquay for a week to see some friends and uh, and work buddies. I'm going to go to Boremasters. I went last year and I've got to say, apart from being older than most of the uh, festival goes by about 20 years, I thought it was really good. Um, certainly upped its game in the 10 years since I'd been before. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to head back and we're going to hopefully get some waves, going to see some music. Uh, I'm going to do some podcast bits. I've arranged to catch up with Ben Skinner in Newquay. 
obviously legendary longboarder, the man behind Skin Dog Surfboards. I think he's got world titles under his belt. He's just generally an icon of the of the British surf scene. And I've met Ben a few times. He's a lovely fella. So I'm looking forward to that one. And plus he owns a brewery. So what's not to like about that? And then I'm also going to speak to Hugo Tag Tagholm, I think you pronounce it. Hugo's a guy I know pretty well. He's based down in St. Agnes. He's the chief executive of Surfers Against Sewage. And as such is the man behind much of the very worthy work that that organisation is famous for. And, you know, Surfers Against Sewage, I think we all owe him a lot for the uh, relentlessly upbeat um, issue raising they've been doing for two, two decades, I think now. So I'm really looking forward to speaking to Hugo and finding out much more about that and, and what people like me, who could do a lot better, can do to help. Uh, and in between that, I'm also interviewing the great Lucy Adams, uh, UK skateboarding royalty, head of Skateboard England, uh, Love and Skate Pro, and generally a bit of a legend, Lucy. So I'm going to be doing that as well. And I'm very much looking forward to that because uh, we don't know each other, but we've had a bit of chat and she seems ace. So yeah, great. So there you go. That's it for now. Uh, usual drill. If you want to find out more, check the show notes, www.wearelookingsideways.com. Find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under We Look Sideways or through the website. And uh, yeah, that's it. And I'll see you next time. See you later. Bye-bye.